0: You can't just go charging in, saying you're wrong and I'm right, because as we just heard, everybody thinks they are right. This program
1: is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the You Are Not So Smart podcast, a TED Talk by Jonathan Haidt, and Bill Moyers in Conversation.
2: We are all arguing. We're all bickering. We're all trying to get people to either see things our way or change their mind about the way they see things. And sometimes this is directed at uh, policies or directed at um, courses of action that we think that should be taken either by our institutions or by people who are in our friends and family. Or sometimes it's just, you know, uh, it could be as simple as saying, no, the new Star Wars movie was awesome. And I think here's why. And you lay it out. (laughs) And when when we try to argue with other people, when we try to make a case for why they are wrong and we are right, you uh, suggest in your study that we do something uh, sort of uh, intuitively that just doesn't work. And that was in, in your both of your um, your hypothesis, both hypotheses in your uh, study sort of lay this out. So if you could, we're going to walk our way through your research here. What, what did you hypothesize up front about the way we argue?
3: Sure. Yeah. So uh, uh, one of our intuitions going into this research is that this idea of the moral empathy gap probably presents a a barrier to political persuasion. So if it's the case, which we know it is the case, that liberals and conservatives tend to hold different moral values and that moral values tend to uh, blind people to one another's perspectives, then this might help us understand why it is that liberals and conservatives tend to be so... Apparently terrible at persuading one another to uh, to agree with them and even to acknowledge one another's basic humanity uh, Which you know seems to be failing this year in particular Uh, so in a nutshell we Had this idea that liberals and conservatives when they go to persuade one another on some sort of moral uh, some sort of political issue They tend to make arguments in terms of their own moral values Uh, in effect they persuade as though they were looking into a mirror, making arguments that they themselves find persuasive rather than thinking effortfully about, you know, what's the sort of moral argument that's going to be persuasive to this person I'm talking with? You know, should I, what, what are the values of the audience uh, to this, this uh, persuasive appeal? Uh, and of course, this sort of reasoning neglects the fact that liberals and conservatives in the U.S. tend to care about different things. As, as we uh, as we mentioned, liberals care a lot about equality, fairness, protecting vulnerable people from harm. Conservatives care a lot about group loyalty, patriotism, respect for authority, purity. And uh, one way to think about this is that is to think that the very divided political topography of our country rests atop an equally divided moral topography. And uh, and when you ask someone to not only agree with you on some political issue that they feel differently from you about, but also to forsake their values for your values. Well, that's tough. That usually isn't going to go very far because people's, I mean, people's values define them for a lot of people. They're willing to fight and die for their values. Um, and they, these are the beliefs that people have that they are most motivated to protect. And so, um. You know, it's much easier to change somebody's position on the earned income tax credit than it is to change their position on the importance of equality in a free society. So uh, so that was sort of the the guiding intuition we had was that uh, that on the one hand, the way the liberals and conservatives approach moral appeals is to make arguments in terms of their own values, not The values of their audience. And then secondarily, if they didn't do it this way, if they did consider the values of the person they were trying to persuade, that they would be more effective.
2: It's it's interesting to me that these arguments can be painted as being moral, uh, and they can be painted as differently moral, depending on how you want to to try to persuade people. And so, um I'm interested in hearing what you found, and uh, I find all of these great. Um, you Your first thing you wanted to do was to find out if people were in favor of making um, English the national language. I think you were trying to find conservatives and liberals in this. So what did you find in, in your fir- in the first round there when you seeing uh, you're seeing whether or not people would would intuitively make arguments for uh, making English the national language from a moral standpoint. What did you find there?
3: Yeah, so the first thing that we wanted to investigate is, is it really the case that liberals and conservatives tend to make arguments in terms of their own values rather than the values of the person that they're talking to? So in one study, we offered liberals a cash prize if they could make an argument for gay marriage that conservatives would find persuasive. And uh, what we found was that liberals overwhelmingly made arguments in terms of the liberal moral values of equality and fairness, or these are moral values endorsed more by liberals than they are by conservatives. So we found that liberals wrote things like everyone should have the right to love whoever they choose, and they deserve, they being gay Americans deserve the same equal rights as other Americans. And overall, 69% of liberals, when we coded the arguments that they constructed, 69% made arguments in terms of a more liberal moral value and just 9% used a more conservative moral value. And we also studied conservative, in all these studies, we've tried to study it, you know, from both directions. And we found conservatives, they weren't much better at this exercise. Uh, They tended to make arguments when we asked them to construct a persuasive appeal for why English should be the official language of the United States, a traditionally conservative policy position. Uh, They tended to make arguments in terms of, conservative moral values like patriotism and group loyalty and respect for authority and so on. In fact, 59% of conservatives made arguments using one of those kind of values, and just 8% used values related to equality and fairness, values that are endorsed more by liberals, uh, even though it's supposed to be liberals that that they were targeting for persuasion. So, you know, you, you can see right away why we'd be in trouble with that kind of a scenario.
2: You know, (laughs) so just before we move forward, what is people who made around 10 percent or 8 8 percent of one and 9 percent of the other did actually attempt to um, make the other side's argument from their moral perspective? What is the conservative argument for same sex marriage and what is the liberal argument for uh, making English a national language?
3: So what would work better than these uh, sorts of arguments that people make spontaneously, uh, we believe that it's a technique that we call moral reframing. And uh, in this technique, what you do is rather than just give your own moral reasons for why you support some political position, uh, you think carefully about how your target audience might come to agree with you on that political position, but from a different moral origin. You know why it is that, say you're a liberal. Why would a conservative with very different moral values from your own, why might they agree with you that same-sex marriage ought to be legal, mm-hmm. uh, given their start, their moral starting place? So, in one of our experiments, we asked conservatives and liberals to read essays in support of same-sex marriage that were constructed in terms of either the values of equality and fairness or the values of loyalty and patriotism. So the loyalty and patriotism argument, you know, said things like uh, gay Americans are loyal, patriotic Americans. They serve the military. They contribute to our economy. They only want the same rights that other Americans enjoy and America, America and go America. Mm -hmm. So, this very patriotic message, we found uh, it didn't really make a difference whether liberals read an equality message or a patriotism message for same-sex marriage. This is a position that liberals are already on board for. But for conservatives, it really it really mattered. Conservatives supported same-sex marriage more if they had heard this patriotism-based argument uh, for it. And we tested going the other way as well, uh, constructing persuasive appeals On, you know, on issues like uh, making English the official language of the United States and uh, having high levels of military spending in the U.S., classically conservative positions that we packaged in terms of liberal values like equality and fairness. And when we did, we found that liberals supported these positions significantly more than they would have
2: otherwise. Okay. That I just, I just, I just want to stand up and walk around the room and think for a minute because it's so, it's, it it's so great, it's so great, uh, I'm, i I, because, um, it, what I think, what, what I like about this, from my own perspective, is that it, it was difficult for me to think of what would be that argument when they're like, um, and, uh, but when you, as you say later on in the study, and we'll get there once it is presented to me, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. That that would that totally would work, um you reframe the arguments in a way that would be more uh, appealing to the other side. I'm just wondering, like, what did you find statistically? What did you find? What was the, what was your success like or lack? Yes.
3: The takeaway was that when we Shows so liberals and conservatives morally reframed messages, so sort of new messages for political positions they would not normally support, but that were essentially rewired to appear logically consistent with their moral values, that they tended to support those positions more, whether they were national health insurance in one of our studies or high levels of military spending, and another. I mean, we've also studied all sorts of things like uh, environmental reform, taking action on climate change, you know, uh, same-sex marriage, as we mentioned, a variety of issues. That when you hear a logical argument for why that position that you maybe disagree with is consistent with values that you hold deeply, you're more favorably disposed to it. Now the effects are not necessarily enormous and one, one should be very skeptical of massive effect sizes in political persuasion studies. People have thought a lot about their politics and they're, they're not, you know, ready to, to, to totally flip on most, you know, core political positions, but we did, we do find really reliable effects. You know, when we, Go across different issue domains. We tend to find that there is a morally reframed argument there that that could be made that would be persuasive.
4: Aren't you tired just
0: two American friends are traveling together in Italy, they go to see Michelangelo's David, and when they finally come face to face with the statue, they both freeze dead in their tracks. The first guy, we'll call him Adam, is transfixed by the beauty of the perfect human form. The second guy, we'll call him Bill, is transfixed by embarrassment at staring at the thing there in in the center. So here's my question for you. Which one of these two guys was more likely to have voted for George Bush, which for Al Gore? I don't need to show a hands because we all have the same political stereotypes. We all know that it's, uh, that it's built. Um, and in this case, the stereotype corresponds to a reality. It really is a fact that liberals are much higher than conservatives on a major personality trait called openness to experience. People who are high on openness to experience just crave novelty, variety, diversity, new ideas, travel. People low on it like things that are familiar, that are, that are uh, safe and dependable. If you know about this trait, you can understand a lot of puzzles about human behavior. You can understand why artists are so different from accountants. Uh, You can actually predict uh, what kinds of books they like to read, what kinds of places they like to travel to, and what kinds of food they like to eat. Once you understand this trait, you can understand why anybody would eat at Applebee's, but not anybody that you know. This trait also tells us a lot about politics. The the main researcher of this trait, Robert McRae, says that open individuals have an affinity for liberal, progressive, left-wing political views. They like a society which is open and changing. Whereas closed individuals prefer conservative, traditional, right-wing views. This trait also tells us a lot about the kinds of groups people join. So here's a description of a group I found on the web. What kinds of people would join a global community welcoming people from every discipline and culture who seek a deeper understanding of the world, and who hope to turn that understanding into a better future for us? All this is from some guy named Ted. (laughs) Well, let's see now. If openness predicts who becomes liberal, and openness predicts who becomes a Tedster, then might we predict that most Tedsters are liberal? Let's find out. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand uh, whether you are liberal, left of center on social issues we're talking about primarily, uh, or conservative. And I'll give a third option because I know there are a number of libertarians in the audience. So right now, please raise your hand down in the simulcast rooms too. Let's you know, let everybody see who's here. Please raise your hand if you would say that you are liberal or left of center. Please raise your hand high right now. Okay. Please raise your hand if you'd say you're libertarian. Okay, about a do- uh, two dozen. And please raise your hand if you say you are right of center or conservative. One, two, three, four, five, about eight or ten. Okay. This is a bit of a problem. Because if our goal is to understand the world, to seek a deeper understanding of the world, our general lack of moral diversity here is going to make it harder. Because when people all share values, when people all share morals, they become a team. And once you engage the psychology of teams, it shuts down open-minded thinking. <clears throat> um, we, uh, when the liberal team loses, as it did in 2004 and as it almost did in 2000, we comfort ourselves. We try to explain why half of America voted uh, for the other team. Uh, we think they must be blinded by religion uh, or by simple stupidity. <laughs> So so if you think think that half of America votes Republican because they are blinded in this way, then my message to you is that you're trapped in a moral matrix, in a particular moral matrix. And by the matrix, I mean literally the matrix like the movie The Matrix. Uh, But I'm here today to give you a choice. You can either take the blue pill and stick to your comforting delusions, or you can take the red pill, learn some moral psychology, and step outside the moral matrix. Now because I know oh. Okay, I assume that answers my question. I was going to ask you which one you pick, but no need. You're all high in openness to experience, and besides, it looks like it might even taste good and you're all uh, epicures. So anyway, let's go with the red pill. Let's take let's study some moral psychology and see where it takes us. Let's start at the beginning. What is morality and where does it come from? The worst idea in all of psychology is the idea that the mind is a blank slate at birth. Developmental psychology has shown that kids come into the world already knowing so much about the physical and social worlds, and programmed to make it uh, really easy for them to learn certain things and hard to learn others. The best definition of innateness I've ever seen, this just clarifies so many things for me, is from uh, the brain scientist Gary Marcus. He says, the initial organization of the brain does not depend that much on experience. Nature provides a first draft, which experience then revises. Built-in doesn't mean unmalleable, it means organized in advance of experience. Okay, so what's on the first draft of The Moral Mind? To find out, um, my my colleague Craig Joseph and I read through the literature on anthropology, on cultural variation and morality, and also on evolutionary psychology. Looking for matches, what are the sorts of things that people talk about across disciplines that you find across cultures and even across species? We found five, five best matches, which we call the the five foundations of morality. The first one is harm care. We're all mammals here. We all have a lot of neural and hormonal programming that makes us really bond with others, care for others, feel compassion for others, especially the weak and vulnerable. gives us very strong feelings about those who cause harm. This moral foundation underlies about 70% of the moral statements I've heard here at TED. The second foundation is fairness reciprocity. Uh, There's actually ambiguous evidence as to whether you find reciprocity in other animals, but the evidence for people could not be clearer. This Norman Rockwell painting is called The Golden Rule, and we heard about this from Karen Armstrong, of course, as the foundation of so many uh, religions. That second foundation underlies the other 30% of the moral statements I've heard uh, here at TED. Third foundation is in-group loyalty. You do find groups uh, uh, in the animal kingdom, you do find cooperative groups, but these groups are always either very small or they're all siblings. It's only among humans that you find very large groups of people who are able to cooperate, join together into groups, but in this case, groups that are united to fight other groups. This probably comes from our long history of tribal living, of tribal psychology. Um, and this tribal psychology is so deeply pleasurable that even when we don't have tribes, we go ahead and make them because it's fun. Um, uh, sports is to war as pornography is to sex. We get to exercise uh, our, some ancient, ancient drives. Uh, the, f- the fourth foundation is authority respect. Here you see submissive gestures from two members of very closely related species. But authority in humans is, is not so... Closely based on on power and brutality, as it is in other primates. It's based on more voluntary deference and even elements of love at times. The fifth foundation is purity-sanctity. This painting is called the allegory of chastity. But purity is not just about suppressing female sexuality. It's about any kind of ideology, any kind of idea that tells you that you can attain virtue by controlling what you do with your body, by controlling what you put into your body, and while the political Uh, Right may moralize sex much more. Uh, The political left is really doing a lot of it with food. Food is becoming extremely moralized nowadays, and a lot of it is ideas about purity, about what you're willing to touch or put into your body. I believe these are the five best candidates for what's written on the first draft of The Moral Mind. I think this is what we come with, at least a preparedness to learn all of these things. But as my son Max grows up in a liberal college town, how is this first draft going to get revised? And how will it end up being different from a kid born 60 miles south of us in Lynchburg, Virginia. To think about culture variation, let's try a different metaphor. If there really are five systems at work in the mind, five sources of intuitions and emotions, then we can think of the moral mind as being like one of those audio equalizers that has five channels where you can set it to a different setting on every channel. And my colleagues Brian Nozick and Jesse Graham and I made a questionnaire uh, which we put up on the web at uh, www.yourmorals.org, and so far 30,000 people have taken, have taken this questionnaire, and you can too. Here are the results. Here are the results from about 23,000 uh, American citizens. On the left, I've plotted the scores for liberals, on the right, those for conservatives, in the middle the moderates. The blue line shows you people's responses on the average of all the harm questions. So as you see, people care about harm and care issues. They give high endorsement of these sorts of statements all across the board, but as you also see, liberals care about it a little more more than conservatives, the line slopes down. Same story for fairness, but look at the other three lines. For liberals, the scores are very low. Liberals are basically saying, no, this is not morality. In-group authority, this stuff has nothing to do with morality, I reject it, but as people get more conservative, the values rise. We could say that liberals have a kind of a two-channel or two-foundation morality. Uh, conservatives have more of a five-foundation or five-channel morality. We find this in every country we look at. Here's the data for 1,100 Canadians. I'll just flip through a few other slides. The UK, Australia, New Zealand, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Latin America, the Middle East, the East Asia, and South Asia. Notice also that on all of these graphs, the slope is steeper on in-group authority purity, which shows that within any country, the disagreement isn't over harm and fairness. Everybody, I mean, we debate over what's fair, but everybody agrees that harm and fairness matter. Moral, moral arguments within cultures are especially about issues of in-group authority purity. This effect is so robust uh, that we find it no matter how we ask the question. Uh, in one recent study, we asked people to suppose you're about to get a dog, you picked a particular breed, you learn some new information about the breed. Suppose you learn that this particular breed is independent-minded and relates to its owner as a friend and an equal. Well, if you're a liberal, you say, Hey, that's great, because liberals like to say, Fetch, please. <laughs> <clears throat> but if you're a conservative, That's not so attractive. If you're conservative and you learn uh, that a dog is extremely loyal to its home and family and doesn't warm up quickly to strangers, for conservative, well, loyalty is good. Dogs ought to be loyal, but to a liberal, it sounds like this dog is running for the Republican nomination. So you might say, okay, there are these differences between liberals and conservatives, but what makes those three other foundations moral? Aren't those just the foundations of xenophobia and authoritarianism and puritanism? What makes them moral? The answer, I think, is contained in this incredible triptych from Hieronymus Bosch, uh, The Garden of Earthly Delights. In the first panel, we see the moment of creation, creation. It all is ordered. All is beautiful. All the people and animals are doing what they're supposed to be doing, where they're supposed to be. Uh, but then, given the way of the world, things change. We get every person doing whatever he wants with every aperture of every other person and every other animal. Uh, some of you might recognize this as the '60s. <laughs> but the '60s inevitably gives way uh, to the '70s, where uh, the uh, cuttings of the apertures hurt a little bit more. Of course, Bosch called this hell. Um, so this this triptych, these three panels, portray the timeless truth that uh, order tends to decay, the truth of social entropy. But lest you think this is just some part of the Christian imagination where Christians have this weird problem with pleasure, here's the same story, the same progression uh, told in a paper that was published in Nature a few years ago in which uh, Ernst Fair and Simon Gachter had people play a commons dilemma, a game in which you give people money Uh, And then on each round of the game they can put money into a common pot and then the experimenter doubles what's in there And then it's all divided among the players So it's a really nice analog for all sorts of environmental issues Where we're asking people to make a sacrifice and they themselves don't really benefit from their own sacrifice But you really want everybody else to sacrifice, but everybody has a temptation to free ride And what happens uh, is that at first people start off reasonably cooperative. This is all played anonymously on the first round, people give about half of the money that they can, uh, but they quickly see, you know what, other people aren't doing so much, so I don't want to be a sucker, I'm not going to cooperate. And so cooperation quickly decays from reasonably good down to close to zero. But then, and here's the trick, Fair and Gactor said on the seventh round, they told people, you know what, new rule, if you want to give some of your own money to punish people who aren't contributing, you can do that. And as soon as people heard about the punishment issue going on, cooperation shoots up. It shoots up, and it keeps going up. There's a lot of research showing that to solve cooperative problems, it really helps. It's not enough to just appeal to people's good motives. It really helps to have some sort of punishment, even if it's just shame or embarrassment or gossip. You need some sort of punishment to bring people, when they're in large groups, to cooperate. There's even some recent research suggesting that religion, uh, priming God, making people think about God, often in some situations leads to more cooperative, more pro-social behavior. Some people think that religion is an adaptation evolved both by cultural and biological evolution to make groups cohere in part for the purpose of of trusting each other and then being more effective at competing with other groups. I think that's probably right, although this is a controversial issue. Um, But I'm particularly interested in religion in the origin of religion and in what it does to us and for us because I think that the greatest wonder in the world is not the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is really simple. It's just a lot of rock and then a lot of water and wind and a lot of time, and you get the Grand Canyon. It's not that complicated. This is what's really complicated, that there were people living in places like the Grand Canyon, cooperating with each other, or on the savannas of Africa, or on the frozen shores of Alaska. And then some of these villages grew into the mighty cities of Babylon, and Rome, and Tenochtitlan. How did this happen? This is an absolute miracle, much harder to explain than the Grand Canyon. The answer, I think, is that they used every tool in the toolbox. It took all of our moral psychology to create these cooperative groups. Yes, you do need to be concerned about harm. You do need a psychology of justice. But it really helps to organize a group if you can have subgroups, and if those subgroups have some internal structure, uh, and if you have some ideology that tells people to suppress their carnality, to pursue higher, nobler ends. And now we get to the crux of the disagreement between liberals and conservatives because liberals reject three of these foundations. They say, no, let's celebrate diversity, not common in group membership. They say, let's question authority, and they say, keep your laws off my body. Liberals have very noble motives for doing this. Traditional authority, traditional morality, can be quite repressive and restrictive to those at the bottom, to women, to people that don't fit in. So liberals speak for the weak and oppressed. They want change and justice, even at the risk of chaos. As this guy's shirt says, stop bitching, start a revolution. If you're high in openness to experience, revolution is good, it's change, it's fun. Conservatives, on the other hand, speak for institutions and traditions. They want order, even at some cost, to those at the bottom. The great conservative insight is that order is really hard to achieve, it's really precious, and it's really easy to lose. So as Edmund Burke said, the restraints on men, as well as their liberties, are to be reckoned among their rights. This was after the chaos of the French Revolution. So once you see this, once you see that liberals and conservatives both have something to contribute, that they they form a balance on, uh, on change versus stability, then I think the way is open to step outside the moral matrix. This is the great insight that all the Asian religions have, have attained. Think about yin and yang. Yin and yang aren't enemies. Yin and yang don't hate each other. Yin and yang are both necessary, like night and day, for the functioning of the world. You find the same thing in Hinduism. Uh, there are many high gods in Hinduism. Two of them are Vishnu the preserver, Shiva the destroyer. This image actually is both of those gods sharing the same body. You have the markings of uh, Vishnu on the left, so we could think of Vishnu as the conservative god. You have the markings of Shiva on the right. Shiva is the liberal god. And they work together. You find the same thing in Buddhism. These two stanzas contain, I think, the deepest insights that have ever been attained into moral psychology. Uh, from the Zen master, Sen San. If you want the truth to stand clear before you, never be for or against. The struggle between for and against is the mind's worst disease. Now, unfortunately... It's a disease that has been caught by many of the world's leaders. But before you feel superior to George Bush, before you throw a stone, ask yourself, do you accept this? Do you accept stepping out of the battle of good and evil? Can you be not for or against anything? So what's the point? What should you do? Well, if you take the greatest insights from ancient Asian philosophies and religions and you combine them with the latest research on moral psychology, I think you come to these conclusions, that our righteous minds were designed... Uh, by evolution, um, to unite us into teams, to divide us against other teams, and then to blind us to the truth. So, what should you do? Am I telling you to not strive? Am I telling you to embrace sensan and stop? Stop with this struggle uh, 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 of for and against? No, absolutely not. I'm not saying that. This is an amazing group of people who are doing so much, using so much of their, of their talent, their brilliance, their energy, their money, to make the world a better place, to fight to fight wrongs, uh, to, to solve problems. <clears throat> but as we learned from Samantha Power in her, in her uh, story about Sergio uh, Vieira de, de Mayo, you can't just go charging in, saying, you're wrong and I'm right. Because as we just heard, everybody thinks they are right. A lot of the problems we have to solve are problems that require us to change other people. And if you want to change other people, a much better way to do it is to first understand who we are. Understand our moral psychology. Understand that we all think we're right. And then step out, even if it's just for a moment. Step out, check in with Senson. Step out of the moral matrix. Just try to see it as, as a struggle playing out in which everybody does think they're right. And everybody at least has some reasons. Even if you disagree with them, everybody has some reasons for what they're doing. Step out, and if you do that, that's the essential move to cultivate moral humility, to get yourself out of this self-righteousness, which is the normal human condition. Think about the Dalai Lama. Think about the enormous moral authority of the Dalai Lama, and it comes from his moral humility. So I think the point the point of, of my talk, and I think the point, of, the point of Ted, is that this is a group that is passionately engaged in the pursuit of changing the world for the better. People here are passionately engaged in trying to make the world a better place but there is also a passionate commitment to the truth. and So I think the, the answer is to use that passionate commitment for, to the truth uh, to try to turn it into a better future for us all.
1: of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
2: Change My View is a community on Reddit where people post their opinions in detail and then others provide arguments for why that viewpoint might be flawed. When the posters feel that their opinion has been changed, they award points, deltas, to the people who most contributed to that shift in perspective. And thanks to thousands of people contributing to this sort of interaction for years, all of that text information was just sitting there, waiting to be analyzed, when Chin Hao Tan and his team of researchers fed it into the computer systems they developed using natural language processing and social computation. When they did that and pulled apart the resulting data, they produced a paper in 2016 called Winning Arguments, Interaction Dynamics and Persuasion Strategies in Good Faith Online Discussions. Chienhaus says that when it comes to the community's 35% success rate, the most important factor, aside from the fact that people who are willing to change their minds are gathering in one place, is that people must write out in detail what it is that they believe before the process can begin and there is plenty of social science research to support the idea that simply elaborating your opinion can be all it takes to realize you don't really hold all that strong of a view most of us walk around with a meta-belief we believe that we believe things because we've carefully contemplated them inside and out. But for many things, that simply is not true. And elaborating your beliefs can not only bring into the spotlight the flaws in your thinking, when you do it in front of other people, it holds you accountable so that you can avoid that most pernicious of psychological phenomena, the backfire effect.
5: What we really like about this website is that we actually know some basics or behind the original opinion. And that's why I think that's what makes it difficult to change someone's mind in real life. So you don't really know how he forms this particular opinion. And it's very hard to get him talked out. And if he has not really thought about it, it's actually difficult for himself to identify why he holds that opinion. I think that's for instance that's in my opinion or in my hypothesis, um that's one big reason be behind Backfire effect.
2: The backfire effect, by the way, is the well documented phenomenon by which, when you give somebody evidence that runs counter to their attitude or their belief, they tend to, instead of saying, Oh, thank you, I guess I'm wrong about that, I will change what I think. Instead, they double down and then think even more assuredly and more confidently about the wrong thing they thought before they were confronted with disconfirmatory evidence
5: because people start to think about why he holds this opinion after he hears, hears this new evidence. And it, in that case, it's easier to debunk this new evidence because he can always form a new way of how his opinion has been formed. Um, And in in Change My View, this is very different. Uh, this person has thought about his opinion. He writes down his reasoning, and he is l- harder to avoid acknowledging that some of this reasoning is problematic in some sense, given the counter-argument raised by the other side.
2: What did this study discover? Well, let's go through each point, each insight, one at a time. First of all, it really does matter how many people are in the argument, at least in this community.
5: The more people there are, usually the original opinion holder is more likely to change his opinion.
2: The more people chiming in, the better the chance that the person will change their mind, but it caps off at about 100 people. Why? Well, they believe that it's just the effect of this particular website, the way it's designed. That upper limit could be lower or higher depending on how you design the environment. The second effect that he found was it really matters how many rounds of conversation you have with another person.
5: If you can have several rounds of conversation with um, is you are more likely to succeed in terms of changing his opinion. But once you have more than five rounds of conversation with him, that probably means that you Got you already get into a dead end. There's no way that it, uh, either of you will change the other's opinion. So you are better off uh, are trying some to change someone else's opinion.
2: A little back and forth is great, but too much back and forth, nothing's going to change. So after five rounds, if nothing's changed, move on.
5: And in terms of language, uh, I think the most surprising finding to us is that uh, if you Compare this original opinion, the description of the original opinion and the comment, the more different the comment is from the original opinion, the more likely it is uh, in in succeeding, in persuading the original author.
2: Based purely on word choice, the more dissimilar the response, the better. And probably because this means it came from a differently shaped brain than yours. It's making an argument you've never thought of before because they have a unique perspective from your own. Not only is dissimilar better, but also longer is better.
5: Comment is that longer is more likely to contain new points or different perspectives uh, than the original opinion, original author. Never thought of.
2: And here's where context really matters, because in most online environments, when you start arguing with somebody, you're guaranteed to produce the backfire effect if you bring out the links and start shoveling evidence in people's faces and trying to get them to go to external sources for evidence that your argument is better than theirs. In fact, on Change My View, not only is none of that true, not only are links better because they show you've done your homework and you're knowledgeable, but bullet points seem to be the most deciding factor as to whether or not someone is going to change their mind.
6: Break your argument down into you know a couple of very coarse statements that you want to get across. And then you elaborate on those um, later on. But you want to just really have two or three premises that you're trying to get the person to agree to and then explain why each of those premises is important. And, you, and make sure you highlight those often with um, formatting and stuff to actually... And like bold them or bullet point them or what have you. It's actually very effective.
5: Again, I think this relates uh, to how uh, our earlier like this point that how you phrase your argument really matters. And in this case, people are more willing to read these links compared to the common backfire effect case. And I think that's the reason why uh, more links. Helps because if people are reading to read these links and trying to think about it and take it seriously, more evidence uh, is probably more indicates stronger argu- counter arguments and people are more likely to be changed by these stronger counter arguments.
2: Another important factor for a persuasive argument is arousal. If you are disputing someone, don't make them mad.
6: Never ever insult someone. Uh, it's, I mean, it seem, like it seems like an obvious thing. But people do it all the time.
5: It's not really good to be arousing. I think this kind of connects with uh, existing argument theory. And even our common sense is not really good to be offensive. Don't pose an insult directly, certainly. And don't pose an insult as part of a
6: dichotomy. Uh, you can certainly pose a dichotomy. But always be very careful not to ascribe things to people's persons or to people's personal characteristics. It's, it doesn't work. For instance, one of the most common things that will completely subterfuge an argument is some sort of a conditional insult. So, for instance, either you believe X, Y, Z, or you are something terrible or have some terrible belief. Uh, if you say either conditionally, you know, that, that sort of thing to say, oh, well, you could stop being a racist if you, stop, if you didn't believe that. That sort of argument happens, but it doesn't work. Like, no one accepts your dichotomy.
7: There's something else going on that intrigues me I wanted to ask you uh, about. One of your historian colleagues, Heather Cox at Boston College, recently wrote an article about how wealthy white elites protect themselves. And I thought about this in, in reference to my friend at the grocery store who was saying, Trump is right, the two parties have collaborated to, they've ganged up on me and people Like me now, he's talking about somebody here, Donald Trump, who's not known for being uh, a polite uh, competitor. Uh, He's he's known for being ruthless and for the art of the deal, for firing people in prime time. Uh, And yet, this fellow thinks that Donald Trump, this ruffian billionaire, is going to protect his financial interest, and he sounded like he's going to vote for Trump on that basis. Is that the Stone Age? brain speaking to
4: us. I believe that is the Stone Age brain speaking to us. So, a voter, his feeling, his nervous system, that's what we're talking about, his nervous system is getting angst. He's having anxious moments over what seems to be happening. In the soup of information that he is living in, he's getting negative signals. Trump is connecting with that negative signal and he's saying I've got a solution. He doesn't spell out exactly how his solutions, building a wall, excluding Muslims, is going to help this guy and his family do better in the world. But somehow, because Trump is rich and powerful and um, he's been a known quantity for years, he's familiar, uh, all of a sudden uh, the, the guy says, I want to defer to him, I think he'll know how to get us out of this situation. Because at least Trump is dealing with something real in that guy's world. Whereas a lot of the other politicians, uh, Hillary Clinton, she's really got this problem. Uh, it is not clear when somebody votes for Hillary Clinton that it's what, what emotion they're supposed to be feeling. We know what a Donald Trump voter is feeling. We know what a Bernie Sanders voter is feeling. It's not clear what a Hillary Clinton voter is supposed to be feeling. And the election, in the end, is always about the voter. She's made the campaign about herself. She has not made it about her voters. Until she figures that out, she's going to struggle.
7: What's the best hand to hold in this game? Uh, a, a, a fistful of cards that offer hope, or a fistful of cards that produce anger? Which is the greater motivator, fear or hope?
4: Fear and anger connect with people much more uh viscerally than hope does. Now, if all the stars align, a guy with a hopeful message like Barack Obama years ago is able to uh triumph. But we're living in a period right now where a lot of the problems from 08 haven't been solved, and people feel like the crooks never face their comeuppance. We see constantly on television evidence before our eyes of Muslim extremists blowing stuff up. It's very disconcerting. In this period of high vulnerability, we are much more likely to be susceptible to an unthinking, automatic, favorable response to a fear or anger message. Now, here's the problem where it gets complicated. When Martin Luther King was organizing marches in the 1950s. He had to count on people getting angry about Bull Connor unleashing those mad dogs on protesters down in the South. But he was leading a minority movement, a minority movement, whether it was the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s or ACT UP for gay people protesting the negligence towards AIDS victims in the 1980s. For those people, they need anger to create energy and social cohesion for their group as they're facing incredible odds. But when a majority of the voters are angry, We can't think straight. It's not good. Democracy doesn't work if everybody's angry at everybody because anger literally stops us from wanting to compromise. Anger emanates primarily from the insula in the brain. And when the insula is activated, we don't compromise. When we are anxious, which is the amygdala part of the brain, that's okay. We can be anxious about stuff and we'll still be willing to compromise. But when we go toward this dark anger and a majority do, everything stops. And that's really my diagnosis of why the country um, is uh, in, in so much trouble right now.
8: It creeps all over you like a dull ache.
4: Think of all the things your hands can make. It pulls you to the ground.
2: I went to a Trump rally early on in in the book process uh, before it was even before he was even being taken seriously. And I was like, oh, okay, he's just making these uh, he's he's doing he's using these. He was making those arguments. He was making those moral statements of that of loyalty and unity and um, a strong uh a group of people who were patriotic like he was really really hammering away at, at the American conservative positions and um i'm wondering uh how much of this in the world of politics is in in our in modern politics how much of this how much of that rhetoric is mindful of what you're talking about and what you're researching and how much of it is just they're just looking into what works and, and, and it's more of a Darwinian thing where they're, they just use what works and throw away what doesn't. Is there, I mean, what I'm trying to say is, is there much, um, is this kind of research being utilized in, you know, uh, behind the scenes of modern political campaigns, or is it still something that's sort of locked in academia?
3: Well, I mean, that's an excellent question. And I think that A cynic would say that we moral psychologists and sociologists are only now catching up with uh, stuff that practical ethicists, you know, political campaign consultants, for example, that – you know, that that tell politicians what to say for a living have already known for for decades Mm. uh, that we're just catching up with that common sense. And I think that there's some truth to that. I think that most political consultants would say, yeah, you want to move people to vote for candidate X instead of candidate Y, invoke some sort of moral reason. And that when you look at uh, these sort of, you know, famous failed political campaigns in history, uh, that it often... Happens when people lose track of the fact that you got to offer people some sort of fire, you know, to push them to the polls, to push them to the phone bank and go door to door. You got to give them some sort of, you know, some sort of heat. It can't just be cold, calculated reason and evidence. Um, You know, this was one of the reasons people say that they voted against Al Gore, that he seemed like coldly rational and robotic. He didn't have that heat, you know, which he did kind of develop later, which is sort of interesting for his personal trajectory. But uh, we've specifically studied, you know, his pet issue of climate change, which uh, we believe is an issue that hasn't always thrived because it's often not couched in moral terms. It's couched in very sort of rationalistic, scientific terms. And that's persuasive to some people. But uh, for other people, they really need that heat. And it needs to furthermore agree with their moral values.
2: Yeah. So what is the strong, what is the strong moral argument? Uh, give, let's give people some ammunition. What is the, what would you say is the, I mean, I know how to argue climate change to a scientifically literate person, and I pretty much know how to argue it to a liberal, to an American style liberal person, but I don't know the good conservative moral argument for taking climate change seriously. What, what would you suggest there?
3: Yeah, well, we ran an experiment on exactly this question a few years ago, where we compared the effectiveness of a pretty conventional argument, a pro-environmental argument that that said we needed to protect the environment uh, for reasons related to you know caring for the environment, protecting it from harm. Uh, and these are this is the intuitive way to argue for it, right? It's called the environmental protection agency for a reason. Uh, so we gave people a message that said things like, it's essential we take steps now to prevent further destruction from being done to our earth. And in our research, we find that this is pretty much how when people write op-eds in support of environmental protection, this is how they approach it. They make these kinds of arguments. And then we compared it with a very different message that made an argument that we need to protect the environment in order to protect the sanctity and purity of the environment. So in, in this message, we uh, said things like keeping our forests, drinking water and skies pure Mm. is of vital importance and we should regard the pollution of the places we live in to be disgusting. Uh, Reducing pollution can help us preserve what is pure and beautiful about the places we live. So this is an argument that's really meant to fit with the uh, purity, sanctity and disgust uh, concerns and reactions of American conservatives and we found that it was pretty successful that conservatives who were presented with that purity sanctity message tended to support environmental protection more and they were even more likely to express concern about climate change even though this message didn't even mention climate change that's just like a related environmental issue Uh, so this is this is one way to approach it this is a way that we've tested but i think that there's other approaches uh, that could potentially resonate with American conservatives here, like patriotism. You know, yeah. it would not be for most, most issues that are in the national interest, you can make a patriotism based argument for them. And if you can, that there's there's no good reason not to if you're trying to be persuasive to a conservative audience.
2: That's fascinating. I remember when I was a kid that that the that, in um that pollution always came up as the it, that was the message of a pro the pro environmental, um, um, political, that was the pro the the pro environmental message. was all about pollution when I was a kid and it was all about, um, destroying the environment and saving the earth. But, um, using the pollution as, as sort of like the doomsday, uh, scenario and showing, you know, the industrial runoff and showing litter and that sort of thing. And, um, but I do clearly remember when the message started to change to things like save the owls. And I remember conservative people in my life being greatly turned off by that message. because of like, what about the, what about the people who make a living off of that uh, job? And you know, you're, you're choosing the owl over the, the, um, the blue collar worker. And I, I can, I can almost feel when that message sort of went in one direction and left, uh, and left a lot of people wondering why they would support it whenever there was a, it was clearly leaving their, their moral matrix. That's interesting. Toward the end of your study, you mentioned, um, you had this question came up about, um, it seems, why don't people, why don't we spontaneously make these morally reframed arguments? I mean, we've, we're around people our entire lives. We are, thanks to social media, even more and more so are we exposed to the idea that, Other people think differently or they have a different set of values from us, yet we still don't spontaneously make morally reframed arguments when we're trying to persuade other people. But you found in your research that people easily could recognize that uh, those arguments would be more effective if they were presented those things as a choice. So if you could uh, sort of go through how you um, did that, how you found out that was true, and then uh, why you think that's true.
3: Yeah, so uh, so I think this is an excellent question of why it is that we don't just spontaneously make morally reframed arguments like, you know, because our research was very consistent. People do not tend to do or the just a very small minority of people do this spontaneously. So when you think about barriers to this, I think a few things. So one, I think it's just hard to take the moral perspective of someone else. You know, somebody with different moral values than yourself It's just very challenging to think through those values, but think from that new moral perspective that's not your own. Uh, and Matt Feinberg and I, we had this experience when we were, we were constructing these morally reframed arguments, especially when we had to make ones, I mean, I'll just tip, tip you off, we're, we're both political liberals, and when we had to make arguments for conservative political positions in terms of our values, Or when we went the other way, when we had to make arguments for liberal positions in terms of conservative values, it was very disorienting. It was very challenging because in a lot of ways, it was really our first experience taking the moral worldview of people with very different values from our own. And I say this despite the fact that Matt grew up in Nevada. I grew up in Kansas and South Carolina. You know, we've been in political debates with conservatives, but this was probably really the first time we had sat down and really carefully considered the perspective of somebody with a really different moral uh, you know, set of moral beliefs in our own. And that's, it's kind of sad, you know, that we hadn't before. So, okay. So one is, I think
2: it's just. I, it's also great. I mean, you're, 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 you're a, you're a, you're a scientist, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like no. you, you have your degrees, you're studying it. And even th- this is hard, even for you. So that really says something about that. All right, go ahead. Yeah.
3: Oh, it's, no, it's a totally sad insight on humanity that we like two moral political psychologists had never really done this, you know? So, so in any way, yeah, it is very telling. Uh, So that's one thing There's this kind of cognitive block. It's very hard to do. And then, two, I think there's also a motivational block, because when you go to make a morally reframed argument, you really have to ask yourself, do I want to be totally through and through true to my principles or do I want to be persuasive? Like, do I want to stick to not just the position that I hold, but the reason I have for it? Or do I want to win? You know, like, do I am willing to do what it takes to make a persuasive argument? And that means that you may have to make an argument in terms of a moral value that you don't really endorse yourself. And in in reasonable minds can disagree on what the right answer to that question is, because people might feel that they just don't want to make an argument that seriously engages the value of religious purity because it goes against their values to even do that. And people might feel that they don't even want someone to just agree with them on the issue, but for different moral reasons that they want the person to agree with them for what they consider to be the right reasons. And so, and I I think that this second thing, the motivational block that some people face with moral reframing relates to a larger dilemma in political behavior, which is uh, those things that motivate people are often the exact opposite of what makes them effective and successful politically. So, it's emotion and outrage and visceral responses to immorality that get you fired up about an issue. Uh, but it's, uh, I think it's cold calculated reasoning and strategy that are going to help you win. And this is a dilemma. This, this, this is a dilemma, that social dilemmas, or excuse me, this is a dilemma that social movements face. You know, how do you get people to not just show up for a rally to set aside their self-interest to contribute to this cause, but then also conduct themselves intelligently and persuasively at that rally. And it's it's the same dynamic that we found in political persuasion. How do you get people not only to want others to agree with them, uh, but also set, set aside their own very fiery feelings about this issue to soberly consider another person's perspective and make an effective argument. Right. And that, that, that hot and cold of moral persuasion is it's very challenging to navigate for anyone.
1: We just heard clips today starting and ending the show with the You Are Not So Smart podcast discussing new research into reframing arguments into the moral frame of the person you're trying to persuade. Jonathan Haidt's TED Talk focused on his research about the moral divides between liberals and conservatives. The You Are Not So Smart podcast also discussed research on the most effective ways to change a person's views. And lastly, Bill Moyers discussed the importance of appealing to voters on an emotional level. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
9: Jay, Justin in Indiana. I feel like I'm calling you way too much. Chris's voicemail, Chris from Littleton, Colorado, I believe he said uh, and regarding college education, trade schools, blah, blah, and a lot of voicemail and a lot of, a lot of issues involved in that one. But the one I want to touch on is the necessity for college education and his points on that. He uh, alluded to a lot of different things. One of them is that we need to focus on trade school. Kids with a, a lower mindset can go to trade school and learn trade and work with their hands. And that's all well and good for him predominantly male, predominantly white, working population. But you, you run into run into a lot of problems whenever you start thinking about women and minorities in those trades. And then the other issue is the the level of pay. I mean, Chris was uh, insinuating that the pay for those jobs, trade jobs, are, are good. And they're dwindling like wildfire right now. It's just another oppression of the middle class. Uh, welders are going to make fifteen to seventeen dollars an hour in my area. Plumbers, the same. Electricians are maybe going to hit the twenty dollars an hour mark. The only the only way you can get a higher wage is to get into a place like General Motors or Ford or a factory setting, a power plant, where uh, they're unionized, and we all know where that's going. So. We're constantly being oppressed. Is college education necessary? Not, not really. They're doing it to college-educated people, too. Uh, they're doing it to nurses, with hospitals, restructuring, and firing, and rehiring the state of at a lower wage. It's run amok, man. Uh, corporate America is oppressing the worker, paying them less, trying to uh, rob them of benefits. No pensions anymore. They're gone. I got one, uh, it got frozen, so I got 20 years worth coming to me, lucky me, it's a sad situation we're in, that's capitalism brother, that's, what's, that's what it's done to us, uh, the market dictates the wage, corporations dictate the wage, corporations dictate the market, and, you know, they all work together to uh, get their products at a reasonable price for themselves. Not a reasonable price for the consumer. So, but when we talk about a college education versus a high school education straight into the workforce, uh, we're just talking to a wall. We're talking to ourselves. We're talking to the it's, it's, it's not going to matter. You know, if we can get a national minimum wage up to 13 bucks an hour, who's going to want to go bust their ass welding? Uh, which, you know, I, I'm a welder. Uh, who's going to want to go bust their ass doing that? Doing plumbing, crawling in houses, under houses. Who's going to want to do it? Whenever you can go do something a lot lot less impactful for the same money. And that's not going to change. It's not going to change until we change something uh, above us. That's where all the activism comes into play. That's where our voices need to be loud. We need to call our congresspeople, not write them, call them, so they have to hear you and, and take action try to change the situation so that's my two cents i hope i made a little bit of sense out of that
10: have a great day hey james colin from cleveland just listening to the last episode and uh like reply to the first voicemail i believe it was kyle from portland and uh his thing was about body shaming he talked about how Donald Trump and the whole Marco Rubio thing about the hands and then how it made its way into leftist media, leftist comedians like the Turks, like Jimmy Dore, etc. And uh, his parting words were about, you know, think about it. Is it really funny when your people are doing it? And I think he might be missing something or maybe not, but this is my take on it. It, uh, it, is a, it is a shtick. It's a uh, thing that the comedians do. Now, had this whole thing really not come up in the first place, where Donald Trump had to say, uh, my hands are fine, trust me, there's no problems, those were his exact words implying his penis size. The fact that Donald Trump had to make a public statement that it bothers him that much, that is the reason comedians on the left bring this up and talk about them this is something they don't really know they don't really care they don't truly think is funny what's funny is that the other side makes it a thing you're not actually laughing at small hands or about penis size you're laughing at the mentality of people who worry about hand size and penis size coinciding so again i think sometimes on the left we just get a little too uh, uptight, I guess, for lack of better words, about, you know, commonplace gads and how we uh, talk about things. I just, uh, I don't want us to start uh, second-guessing ourselves all that much, trying to be these complete PC warriors when you realize that you're not making fun of the actual body shaming you're making fun of the mentality that buys into the body shaming. So, Jay, that's it.
8: Love the show. Hello, this is Eric from Paris, France. Uh, originally from California, but a regular listener to Best of the Left. And I really appreciate the comments from Chris from Littleton, Colorado, about uh, the possible class implications of Bernie Sanders' free college proposition, and everything that he said was right on the button, but I believe we could go a little bit further with that, and uh, your free college education is not only to uh, you know, educate engineers and future Wall Street stockbrokers, uh, whatever happened to the your belief in uh, liberal, small-l liberal uh, education, and uh, having a educated populace. Uh, people that have the occasion to the opportunity to develop their thinking processes. I'm trying my best not to sound elitist (laughs) everybody has that right not just people that are looking for an advanced degree people that uh, are going to become plumbers uh, or whatever uh, occupation that might be for example, my plumber is someone who plays jazz trumpet. He can't find a way to make a living doing that, but that's, uh, something that he does. He got that through free, available education here in France. There's also someone who might like to, uh, discuss literature. So, why does education have to be linked to uh, any, some kind of future occupation and participation in the economic process? Why couldn't it be just to further educate everybody? Sorry about being so long here, but uh, I think this is uh, important. And if indeed there were uh, people, more working class people in the United States that had had the opportunity. To take an American government class, it's like a freshman-level American government class at an American university. They might have been a little bit better informed, and that could have been the straw that broke the Trump electorates' back. Thanks so much, and the show is outrageous. Talk to you soon. Bye bye.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, over the past several episodes, it's very possible you've been uh, hearing me ask for voicemails explaining things in a new way and I just left it at that you know just put a new twist on something explain it in a different way and the one call that we got that impacted me the most was from Dave in Olympia he calls in pretty regularly and he connected some dots between two completely different groups and the resentments that they both have for very different things but sort of demonstrated the similarities between them. There was uh, basically racial minorities uh, have been expressing resentment over the concept of allyship. And it's a little bit complicated to to get into at the moment, but he sort of explained that uh, concept. And then over in another category, uh, poor people, just of all races, and poverty programs, and how there's actually a very strong undercurrent of resentment about programs that are trying to help people, and the through line between these is this, this sort of, I think, mostly unintentional condescending tone that can be interpreted in both of these concepts, the concept of allyship and the concept of poverty programs. And so he clarified that for me in a really valuable way. I thought it was really excellent. And uh, this whole experiment, this, you know, asking people to call in and, and give explanations like that, was inspired by one of the clips that we heard on today's show, the "You Are Not So Smart" podcast and their episode "Change My View." And you know, I heard that show sort of breaking down scientifically. This is how you change people's minds. This is how you convince people of things. And one of the elements at play was to have multiple people in the conversation because that increases the likelihood that someone's going to come along and give a slightly different explanation in a way that really registers for someone uh, that just wasn't happening before when they were talking to someone else. So I thought if we can get the most number of people possible, giving the most sort of different angles on the same points being made, but you know, just being made in different ways. That that could be really helpful to increasing understanding, increasing just the chance that people are gonna, uh, you know, really get the points uh, that are being made. And then later, uh, they put out that same show. You are not so smart. They put out another episode about the moral frames and expanded, you know, on that. Same concept further, like it, trying to convince people of things is much more effective when you can really see things from their perspective and speak to that perspective instead of to your own. And so I would love it if this show could just become a wash in good ideas like that reframed arguments uh, like the ones that have already come in but not just reframed for progressives but also reframed for conservatives too I want to be very clear I, I hope this episode was clear but I will be doubly clear that understanding a conservative perspective or arguing your point in a conservative moral frame is not the same as negotiating or meeting in the middle Or anything like that. You don't have to sacrifice your values uh, to make an argument that will be more convincing to someone who has a different moral framework than you. This is certainly not meeting racism halfway or meeting discrimination halfway or or meeting any kind of oppression halfway. That's not what this is about. This is about reframing to try to be more convincing and sort of bridge that understanding gap that, that we have right now. I want any conservatives listening to hear about the kinds of policies that we want reframed into a perspective that may resonate more with them. And I want any progressive listening to hear those same arguments and then then be armed with those, armed with that information, so that they can have more effective conversations with their friends, family, coworkers, stalkers, whoever uh, they're talking to about politics. And, and be more effective in those conversations uh, with people who are never going to listen to this show. So are you now, or have you ever been a conservative? Were you raised conservative? Maybe a religious conservative, uh, but you've converted along the way somewhere and you're progressive now. Or do you just have a conservative family, but you understand where they're coming from pretty well, and so you can speak conservative pretty fluently? If any of that matches you, if you think that you can add some value to this conversation, then I am drafting you into service. All of the rest of us can benefit from your knowledge. Uh, you know, it, it's a sad fact, but it's still a fact that we are a profoundly divided nation right now, uh, so much so that we barely understand what the other side Is saying. We don't know where they're coming from. So if there's anything that I and and this show can do to help bridge that gap of understanding, then I really want to give it a try. And it's not like there's a resource out there already that I can just go to and pull from to translate progressive arguments into conservative ones and then tell you about them. Uh, So we sort of just have to do this ourselves and and crowdsource (laughs) the whole thing. Um, So if you think you can be part of that please call in and call in often, break down some arguments for progressive causes in conservative moral frameworks or just reframe for, you know, progressives uh, as we've been doing over the last few weeks. You know, if this goes well, who knows, maybe we'll be the ones who end up creating that resource guide, you know, a a political translation dictionary for a divided America. And as they made clear on the You Are Not So Smart podcast, use bullet points. Apparently, that is incredibly effective for helping make your argument. Use bullet points. Call and leave your message. Second thing today, just real quick, of course, I always want to encourage you to become a member of the show and help support the work we do, and members get access to special members-only bonus content, and the last episode uh, that I put out of bonus content is very fitting for this whole conversation. I was sort of mulling over the idea of really, truly being able to understand another person's perspective. And, you know, I'm not just talking empathy, I'm not just talking about getting to know a person well or understanding their frame, but fully, fully being able to get into their head and understand their history, and their experience, and everything that's happened to them that's helped them construct their personal frame through which they see the world. So I told a couple of stories about two very different groups of people uh, that I've been hearing about in the news or elsewhere. Uh, One was a, a group of Native peoples from the Pacific Northwest, and the other was this newly emboldened group of white supremacists we've been hearing a bit about in the news. And just try to imagine in both of these cases how incredibly difficult it would be to really and truly fully understand their perspective. So I just went on sort of a, Uh, A thought salad (laughs) threw together some ideas uh, that I've been mulling over for a while. So for that and all of my previous members' episodes, you can sign up under the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. And more good news is that PayPal is not the only payment option, if that matters to you. So you can just get details on that page. So keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. You can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there.
10: How we get so trained We could see past our own sad story